0: This is the Saturday edition of the Daily Signal podcast. I'm Richard Reich. Today we're talking with Matthew Continetti about his new book, The Right, The Hundred-Year War for American Conservatism. Matthew Continetti is a journalist and historian of the right. He's also a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, the founding editor of the Washington Free Beacon, and a columnist for Commentary Magazine. Today we're talking with Matthew Continetti, author of the new book, The Right, The Hundred-Year War for American Conservatism. Matthew Continetti is a journalist and intellectual historian of American conservatism. He's the founding editor of the Washington Free Beacon. He's currently a columnist for Commentary Magazine. He's also a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, along with the author of a couple of books, including The Persecution of Sarah Palin and The K Street Gang. Matthew, welcome to the Daily Signal, and uh, thank you for joining us to discuss this new book. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, so, so, Matt, thinking about uh, the subtitle uh, of this book, um, it, it sparks a question: The Hundred Year War for American Conservatism. Uh, that would put us, you know, back in the 1920s as a basis for evaluating contemporary conservatism. Why start in this decade?
1: Sure. I began the right in the 1920s uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, the first is that uh, I wanted to provide a sort of uh, prehistory of American conservatism. Many of the standard accounts of the history of the American right begin at the end of the Second World War, um, really uh, starting with the publication of uh, Frederick Hayek's Road to Serfdom. And then they carry on through and most of the standard accounts culminate either with Ronald Reagan's election in 1980 or perhaps as a coda with Barack Obama's election in 2008. So I wanted to widen the lens. I wanted to take into account not only what had happened prior to America's entry into the Second World War, but also everything that has happened since Reagan's election, since Barack Obama's election, since Donald Trump's election in 2016. The second reason I began in the 1920s was the 1920s was a decade where um, uh, progressivism found itself confined to one political party. Prior to 1920, the philosophy of progressivism, the rule by experts, social uplift through the agencies of government, was really in in the air. And there were uh, Democratic progressives and there were Republican progressives. But with the election of Warren Harding in 1920, and then through the Coolidge presidency in the rest of the decade, the Republican Party was aligned against progressive philosophy. Right. And so you could see the beginnings of American conservatism in the rejection of progressivism. And the third reason, briefly, uh, why I began in the 1920s was when you you look at the GOP of the 1920s and what it stood for, you see, in my view, some similarities
0: to what the GOP of the 2020s is standing for. So there was interesting also, I think you start with the 1920s, and and I think you briefly touched on it in your answer. Uh, It it may be that if we only look at American conservatism from the standpoint of the post-war period... Uh, which is uh, uh, an American conservatism that is, you know, Leo Strauss, Eric Vogelin, uh, Russell Kirk, but of course he's uh, famously appealing to Edmund Burke and to certain British uh, conservative ideas, um, Robert Nisbet, uh, among others, that 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 may be uh, a conservatism in America that's not, let's say, directly in touch uh, with you know, the country at large, and, and certainly not with a, uh, I, I don't know, a, a more grassroots understanding of conservatism or how people are actually living. I mean, that was certainly one critique that you know, Wilmore Kendall raised later on. And so the 1920s could be, uh, as I think you're suggesting, um, the, the real time when a group of people in America start to realize there's a threat to constitutionalism at large via, as, as you've just said, Uh, this sort of enlightened, expert-driven government, which wants to be heavily involved in the national economy. That's right, and also that the Republican Party and
1: this anti-progressive philosophy was in power in the 1920s, right? And it lost power in 1932 and didn't really regain power from a conservative standpoint uh, until the election of Ronald Reagan. And so I think it's important then to see what the conservatives in the post-war era were reacting to. And that was the f- fundamental changes in the nature of American governance that
0: Franklin Delano Roosevelt introduced after his election in 1932. Talk about the nature of the book you've written. You, you say in the introduction, this is not a book like George Nash's, The Conservative Intellectual Movement in America since 1945. That's a book near and dear to my heart, it is a book that I remember reading as an undergraduate. It had an uh, impact on my thinking. What kind of a book have you written?
1: Well, I uh, recommend the Nash book. Of course, it was, it's a very important book to me as well. George Nash's history of the conservative intellectual movement since 1945 is exactly that. It's an intellectual history. It gets really into the weeds of various figures. It has a lot of quotes. It really explores their ideas, where they disagreed, where they agreed. I have a fair amount of intellectual history in the right, but it's also a political history. And so what I try to do in the right is I try to synthesize the intellectual and the political. And I'm looking at how um, the intellectuals, the writers, the thinkers, the economists, responded to politics, how they influenced politics, uh, how they reacted uh, to political developments. And then I'm also looking at how the institutional Republican Party how did it fit into this picture? What conservative ideas did it adopt? Uh, how, how did it begin to regain its majority after the New Deal era? How, what does Reaganism look like? And then what does Trumpism look like? So my book, rather than just being an intellectual history, is a synthesis of the political and the intellectual. And I think it tells a little bit more of a narrative story than, say, the Nash book, which, of course, is uh, among, uh, among my, my favorites.
0: Um, I want to put to you some questions you ask in your introduction. Um, you, you you ask, is the American right the party of insiders or outsiders? Uh, is the right the elites, uh, the men and women in charge of America's political, economic, social, cultural institutions, or is it the people? Uh, is, and, and you say, you know, is the right even able to answer such a question? But I suppose reading your book, the answers to those questions change. Uh, even if we think, even if we think about your starting point in the 1920s, Warren Harding and Calvin Coolidge aren't exactly, you know, Calvin Coolidge in particular, I think of, this is not a man from a ruling class family. He's a man, he's a man from a very sturdy Protestant New England family that gives him a lot of virtues and, you know, self-control for thinking about how to navigate the world. And he carries that with him into politics. But I don't also think he would have saw himself as an outsider or a man of the people, uh, now, of course, thinking about conservatism, it seems we're, we're all about the people, so. Yes, I think the answer
1: to the questions that you read from the book, Richard, depends on what point in time we're discussing, yeah. right? And uh, ultimately, though, I think one of the lessons of the book, The Right, is that uh, conservatism needs both to be populist and to have a respect for institutions and the contributions of intellectuals. Um, and that's, the, that's where I come out at the end of my 100-year history. But when you look at the history of American conservatism, this question is a live one. And sometimes the, the right is more populist and more grassroots. Other times, it's more uh, rarefied, right, um, more elitist. One of the interesting things about the 1920s, as I was doing my research, is even though the Republican Party was so institutionally powerful during that decade, the intellectuals that we associate with the right of the time were actually quite divorced from politics and kind of in contemptuous of mainstream American politics. And here I'm thinking of figures like Albert J. Nock, Henry Louis Mencken, some of the figures behind the new humanist school of uh, literary criticism and social thought. They were They were kind of were at a remove from politics at a point where the Republican Party represented Uh, as coolidge put it americanism and uh the narrative carries through periods where the intellectuals found themselves much more uh, connected to um, the institutions of the republican party suggesting policy ideas even sometimes intellectuals becoming politicians (laughs) themselves or becoming um, uh, office holders in government themselves and I think now we're in a period, actually, where there is some, some space that has reemerged between some of the thinkers that we associate with the right uh, and the actual institutions of the Republican Party um, uh, where they're headed.
0: I, I mean, talk about that briefly. Uh,
1: where do you see that happening? Well, um, the um, periods of the Reagan presidency, Uh, The Gingrich Revolution on Capitol Hill, Mm -hmm. extending through the George W. Bush presidency in the early part of this century, were periods when there uh, was a synthesis between um, the the conservative think tanks, um, the conservative policy publications and small magazines, and uh, what was forming into a conservative governing class. Uh, in government, in the bureaucracy, and in the judiciary, Um, that synthesis was disrupted, uh, beginning with uh, the presidency of Barack Obama. Uh, It really, actually, the synthesis started to come apart in the final years of George W. Bush. Uh, But with Obama and the Tea Party, um, it it came apart, to to quote um, the title of one of the books of my colleague, Charles Murray. And so now, I think the right is much more Populist. It's much more grassroots oriented. It's responding to um, uh, uh, revolts uh, of the public um, that are real. Um, and when we think about, say, parental rights and education, right, or, or um, uh, the the anti-tax and anti-spending protests that animated the Tea Party, or the kind of grassroots rebellion against some of the immigration policies of the Biden administration. These are real responses to public policy problems, but they're bottom-up rather than um, uh, directed from above. And the question is, can the right today um, reconnect to some of the thinkers who are able to offer plausible and effective solutions to these problems? I think some of the mechanisms that had been in place um, beginning with the Reagan era that what um, actually um, Burden Pines, who had long associated with the Heritage Foundation, once called the the decision-making loop in Washington, D.C. I think that's kind of broken down, um, and we need to uh, reassert it as conservatives if we're actually going to address successfully some of the very real problems America has.
0: On that decision-making loop, reasserting it, you also note in the book uh, the the viral president uh, of Donald Trump And you offer two thinkers that you say, who who really, uh, not necessarily political thinkers, but men who understood how uh, American opinion making was going to change with the advent of digital technology and social media. Clearly, Donald Trump effectively used Twitter. Uh, uh, in the 2016 campaign. They didn't like that he used their technology to to help win the presidency, and it seems to my mind tried to pull back on his ability to do that during the presidency as well as other conservatives, and and now we're in a a very aggressive stage of that. Um, That that decision-making loop, though, you describe is obviously challenged not only by populist sentiment, uh, but the way in which it can be expressed in sort of a, a format that does not lend itself to deliberation, or conversation. Uh, and so you have a lot of voices clamoring to be heard uh, in ways outside of institutions, or as your colleague Yuval Levin says, the institution itself becomes a platform that I stand on for my own personal gain.
1: Right. I, I, those two thinkers I discussed, one is Martin Guri, who is a former CIA analyst who came up with this idea of the revolt of the public, that social media technology allows the public's to um, uh, express their displeasure in an unmediated form, to organize into large groups that can overturn governments, say in the case of Egypt in 2011, uh, but can also um, create mass movements if you think of say the Black Lives Matter movement or conversely, if you think of the Trump uh, movement, the Make America Great Again movement, also use social technology to disrupt Um, uh, political uh, institutions. The second thinker is um, a man named Michael Goldheiber who really um, popularized the term the attention economy, which is that in the uh, global economy of today, thanks to these technologies, everyone is competing for everyone else's attention. And if you can grab someone's attention, you have a leg up on everybody else. And so I think uh, President Trump Excels at the attention economy, yeah. and I also think, though, he's beginning to have copycats—not not just on the right, but also on the left. I think if you look at someone like Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, she is also able to harness information technology and social media to grab our attention. So when we look at the viral presidency, which is a pun um, about uh, the, the Trump years, I see a revolt of the public taking place, where. Um, Uh, all sorts of ideas are being um, uh, promoted and um, amplified through social media, leading to social disruption, and I also see the um, triumph of the attention economy, where exactly as you said, more people are treating institutions as platforms for themselves, uh, rather than molds that they can inhabit and can shape them.
0: So, uh, thinking about your book, uh, and the sort of the history you tell, if we think about populism and then conservatism, you also, I think, observe in the book, uh, populism is a thread running throughout American conservatism and helps it regain its popular and electoral footing in the aftermath of World War II, or as it had stumbled mightily during World War II. It was Unable, uh, despite being fairly faithful to a anti-spending small government message, unable to really dent any of the momentum of FDR's New Deal. And after World War II finds its footing in sort of an anti-communist message uh, and real and perceived failures of progressives in government to... Uh, be aware of communists in their midst, but also was there, according to James Burnham or Whitaker Chambers, a real desire to take on what they saw as the existential threat of Soviet communism.
1: Yes, absolutely. I think anti-communism not only was um, a thread that connected all of the various groups on the right and the aftermath of World War II, but it was also a thread connecting the right with the American public uh, as a whole. And so provided the ground uh, that the American right could build on uh, politically. And the other thing, though, that helped uh, the right um, gain traction and find a popular audience in the decades after World War II was the failure of liberal governance um, manifested in national security and the Vietnam War and all that the war did to break apart the Democratic coalition and the Democratic establishment, but also in some of the issues that we're seeing today, when you think about the Democrats of the time being unable to control inflation, and then also problems with rising crime in, in this period.
0: A, a question also, if we think about, um, I, I kind of, you know, Daniel Mahoney had, had a great essay a number of years ago, you know, Delineating first wave neoconservatism and second wave neoconservatism. And uh, if we think about sort of the first wave neoconservatives of this late of the late 60s, 1970s period, they're you know shocked by the failures of urban policy and, and just in general policies coming out of the great society. And they move towards the right. Uh, it seems to me also there's a new generation. I won't say neoconservatives, but certain liberals horrified. Uh, by transgender ideology, I think of Kathleen Stock in the United Kingdom, which is not American. But there's a number of people in this country uh, horrified by certain excesses of uh, you know progressivism now, who seem to be moving towards a more critical posture, uh, perhaps a more conservative. Uh, posture as well. This is also sort of, I think, one of these influences that can also maybe, I don't know, I don't use the word discipline, but sort of channel a lot of populist frustration in a certain direction that's more politically salient. Uh, How do you see that?
1: I I think that's right. I I say at the end of my book, The Right, that one possible direction the American right could take would be uh, this uh, new neoconservatism, a neo-neoconservatism, welcoming in uh, a new generation of thinkers from the left um, from who in this case are uh, liberals who are um, becoming just uh, upset and disgusted at not only the transgender ideology but also um, some of the race politics identity politics that has been injected into American life and so find themselves now without a political home. It's been one of the great I think, advantages of the American right over the years, that it has welcomed defectors from the left. Uh, You you mentioned Whitaker Chambers and James Burnham, for example, who uh, were ex-communists and yet so important to the modern conservative movement. You mentioned the first wave neoconservatives who were uh, Cold War liberals. They were anti-communists, but they also believed in um, a welfare state at home. Uh, and they, too, became disgusted with the student revolt, with the diso- with the disorder and riots in America's cities in the late 1960s, in the anti-American tendencies of the counterculture and the anti-war movement in this period. And they eventually became part of the conservative movement. So there is an opportunity here, I think, um, to welcome some of these new figures. And I, what you find in the history of the right as I mentioned in the book, is that every time a new group of defectors from the left joins the right, they tend to uh, reinvigorate the right, uh, provide it with new arguments, um, new ideas, tend to ground it more in reality rather than in a vision of of a nostalgic, romantic past. Um, and so, this could be a great opportunity. Um, but you know, uh, as President Trump liked to say. We'll see
0: so, so a couple of thoughts come to mind um, so we're thinking about this anti-communist populist moment uh, on the one one level it gives us uh, men like James Burnham it gives us this you know incredible literary investigation of communist ideology by Whitaker chambers uh, spiritual uh, political factual factually true an account of Leading progressives in the Roosevelt administration who were loyal to the Soviet Union, uh, but it also gives us Joseph McCarthy and the John Birch Society, and but conservatives of that period found a way to take those energies, exclude the ones that were just you know or that that refused to you know think more deeply about you know, their ideas, and and sort of bring that together into a, a very powerful political movement. But that problem, that question I think exists now. Uh, I think one way that it happened was uh, a, you know broadly speaking fusionist uh, conservatism. Um, But, of course, now we're told at the same time coming out uh, uh, another book as yours, Yoram Hazoni's Conservatism, a Rediscovery. I've just read that book. Uh, Basically, everything that's gone wrong in conservatism in the last 10 years is because of Frank Meyer's fusionism. Um, So maybe it's not the answer. Uh, How do you see all these things playing out? I think when we look at the history of the right
1: um, that I go over in my book, what was important uh, in to separating the right of the mid twentieth century from the conspiratorial fringe, uh, which dogged uh, the the conservative movement and the Republican Party through the election uh, of nineteen sixty four and th- uh, you know through Barry goldwater's landslide defeat at the hands of Lyndon Johnson. One of the reasons that Goldwater lost was he was viewed as out of the mainstream by a large uh, majority of the American public, there were two ch- changes that happened that allowed the conservative movement uh, to, to distance itself from uh, institutions such as the John Birch Society. The first was um, there was a change in leadership in the conservative movement after 1964. Um, William F. Buckley Jr., the founder of National Review, who was an opponent of the founder of the John Birch Society, Um, uh, Robert Welch, he became America's foremost conservative spokesman uh, through his run for mayor of New York City in 1965. And then in 1966, um, the launch of his public television show, Firing Line. And then also in 1966, Ronald Reagan, who had made his debut really as a political figure uh, in support of Goldwater in 64. Well, in 1966, he wins the governor's mansion of California in a landslide. Having Buckley and Reagan as the spokesman of American conservatism was revolutionary uh, because they were not um, part of the fringe and it was next to impossible for the liberals to paint them as part of the fringe. The second thing that happened is that um, the John Birch society in 1965 turns in an anti communist direction. Uh, begins thinking that America is so um, infested with communists that America itself is on the wrong side, and turns against the Vietnam War, and so that discredited the Birch the Birchers uh, among the right, in addition to the larger American public, and that was critical to separating the conservative movement uh, from the John Birch Society. So I think if we look today, we're going to we, we would need a combination of both those factors. Uh, we would need a new leadership that um, it doesn't frighten away people who are not already committed to the cause, and we would also uh, we'd be paying attention to do do some of these movements turn in such a anti-American direction that they dele- delegitimize themselves in the eyes not only of the larger public but also other conservatives.
0: Um, um. Uh, thinking about, about that answer, uh, you know, what comes to my mind is, obviously Buckley, uh, you know, pedigree, uh, w- wealthy oil family. Uh, he had gone to boarding schools. He went to Yale. Uh, saw himself thoroughly at home uh, as an American elite. Uh, even though he's, you know, he writes a book defending McCarthy. Uh, he writes famously, God and Man at, at Yale, a book uh, repudiating much of the pedagogy he had received at Yale. Uh, so he wasn't afraid to call out problems in uh, important institutions in American life, uh, but he did it in a certain way. Um, but it's, it also seems to me the case, um, when that conservative movement emerges, it's, it's not the case that America's major institutions had so uh, thoroughly turned against, uh, I mean, they, they wouldn't have said turned against conservative ideas, but turned the way they have in our day. Uh, and, and I think of the major institutions, not only, you know, education, uh, culture, uh, media, I mean, across the board, it, it makes it difficult, uh, it seems to me, for uh, someone to emerge in such a way that, that they could do that kind of work. Um,
1: well, I, I'm not sure the conservatives of the time uh, thought of it that way. I think they held a similar view that all of the institutions were dominated by liberals, and they had no purchase. In fact, Uh, Remember, uh, I don't need to remind you, of course, the the conservative movement in some ways defines itself against a popular Republican president, (laughs) Dwight Eisenhower. So (laughs) they didn't even have the Republican Party. Um, The the, the conservatives' response in the mid-20th century was to create um, counter-institutions, which conservatives have been very good at doing. And so uh, the American right today I don't think is anywhere... uh, as endangered as it was in the mid 20th century, it has uh, it has a dominant position. I wouldn't say a controlling position, but a dominant position in the Republican Party. Um, it can't be ignored. The conservative movement. Um, it has talk radio. It has Fox News Channel. It has the internet, podcasts, social media. Uh, it's you know Ben Shapiro's the most popular Facebook page. Uh, his, his Daily Wire gets shared everywhere. Um, uh, uh, so uh, the, there's no question that the conservative message, I think, is uh, present in the American debate in a way that it simply was not. It just wasn't uh, for much of the 20th century. What, what, the, what needs to be done now is, um, I think, new thinking about counter institutions, as well as recognizing that the real dangers to the American right come from within the American right. Liberals are in the process of discrediting themselves once again. I mean we 're living through it. Mm-hmm. I mean, just as, as you know the only thing that can defeat America is America. I think the only thing that can defeat American conservatism is American conservatism giving into some of um, some temptations that that have dogged it in the past, and um, uh, we just don't know uh, whether that will happen again, um, whether we'll have. An, leadership who prevents it from happening again, whether we're going to have an, an agenda that will um, anchor um, the Republican politicians who I think will be elected in large
0: numbers this November. Yeah. It remains to be seen. So talk, um, if you would, more particularly about those dangers. Well, uh, in the right, I, I kind of
1: discuss how, um, you know, both um, populism and elite elitism or you know um uh, reliance on expert opinion have dangers and we're well aware i think of the dangers of elitism um but populism also has some dangers Uh, one is that populism uh easily can lead into uh conspiracy theory um populism also has a tendency to scapegoat people and groups of people um and then populism also has a, a, a tendency, because it, it, it wants the will of the people to be expressed, it sometimes, it sometimes is willing to embrace uh, strongmen um, uh, to get the job done, rather than rely on the constitutional structures of the American founding. And so I, 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 I see these uh, things present in, throughout my history. And uh, I think that they've always led to problems for the right, and they've always led into uh, rabbit holes that don't serve the cause very well. And I think Ronald Reagan's great skill was that he was a populist, but he didn't scapegoat people. He scapegoated big government. He scapegoated the bureaucracy. Um, And he also had a uh, optimism. It wasn't Anger that he was feeding people back he, he understood that the public was angry at what liberals were doing but then he channeled that anger into a, a hopeful vision of What America could be if we got government under control um, And I think that's the type of leadership um, That that has led to the American rights greatest successes and could lead to similar successes in the future
0: You also, uh, yeah, Reagan also, you know, he said morning in America, that was one line. He also did not, uh, he wasn't afraid to quote from Thomas Paine, uh, not, not exactly a conservative, but someone who expressed a certain amount of optimism and freedom that Reagan wanted to channel as well. Also, Matt, the book is personal, I think to you, um, Uh, As much as you write as a historian and as a journalist, Uh, you say when you came to Washington in the early 2000s, the center of conservative gravity uh, was at the address 1150 17th Street, uh, which housed uh, the Weekly Standard, uh, the American Enterprise Institute, and the project for a new American century. And you say simply that is no more. Um, Both both. Physically and also uh, uh, in terms of ideas. And you say that the center of gravity shifted to the Heritage Foundation uh, uh, and also the uh, Hillsdale D.C. campus, the Kirby Center and the Claremont Institute Center for the American Way of Life. Uh, Would you say their challenge now is to articulate uh, what Wilmore Kendall might have argued as a conservative populism anchoring that in constitutional uh, institutional design?
1: Yes, I I think so. Um, uh, You know, I I begin the book with a description of uh, me showing up to work at 1157th Street. And as you mentioned, Richard, um, literally the the building doesn't exist anymore. (laughs) Um, And uh, in fact, a friend reminded me recently that not only does the building not exist, but on election night 2016, a fire broke out uh, in the empty hulk (laughs) of the building uh, before it was totally demolished. Um, and of course uh, the magazine uh, where I worked for uh, eight years and contributed to for many more was uh, the weekly standard and it, it was ended in 2018 so that doesn't exist uh, there's a new conservative establishment that is being in the uh, being born and uh, the question to me is uh, will this establishment b- provide uh, the idea, not only the ideas, but an actual concrete agenda that the public uh, will rally around and that will address the real problems America faces uh, in a way that is effective and uh, demonstrably so. And this is, this again was, was Reaganism. Reagan came into power he saw the problem of stagflation. He saw the problem of a rising Soviet Union. He saw that Americans were dispirited, you know, had lost the sense that they lived in a great country, and he set to work reviving that spirit, putting in policies that ended um, stagflation, and that policies that eventually resulted in uh, the few years right after he left office, in the end of the Soviet Union. So. Um, what are the, our problems today? Well, our problems today, clearly, if you just look at the polls, it's the we have a return of inflation and maybe soon stagflation. Uh, we have uh, crime on the rise. We have an insecure border. Uh, we have uh, a rising cost of living, especially with health care and education. So the challenge for the new conservative establishment is coming up with the answers that politicians can take to the people and that the people will say, yes, those are plausible answers to the problems that affect me in my daily life. And uh, I think we've seen some examples of that. You know, I think I think if you look at the Glenn Youngkin election last year, uh, we see how that can work. And the question is, uh, will will we be able to replicate it on a national scale?
0: Listening to your answer. Um... It's something that uh, I think you would agree with. You don't exactly say this in the book. I and mean, We talk a lot about the 2016 election being so consequential to this kind of a conversation. But also the 2012 election is, is really a turning point uh, for a number of reasons. I, I think one of those reasons is uh, it gets stated sometimes you know, mitt romney was like the nicest man to ever enter into national politics and he is you know thoroughly bludgeoned by the obama campaign uh called everything you can imagine which i think is a it was a clue to a lot of conservatives of uh, a certain of progressivism that they were encountering and it uh, I, I think mm, uh, helped people take the gloves off we'll say um, but also the 2012 election, you know, Romney and, and Ryan lose. They are run on, if not exactly in a policy terms, but a rhetoric of uh, you know, classical liberalism, of job creation, economic growth, trim the welfare state. That's inevitably there with, with the presence of Paul Ryan. And they fail. And then the autopsy report, which you write about, the famous autopsy report of the RNC, which is to focus more on immigration, being more liberal on immigration, open open to it, also it gets rejected by the party. And we sort of stumble our way into the, the, the moment of 2015 when Trump comes down the escalator and declares uh, his election. Uh, talk about the, that process, how you see that unfolding and – sort of also signaling an end to uh, a certain type of post-Cold War conservatism. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about that 2012 election, especially in
1: light of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And um, Mitt Romney's uh, uh, comment, remember, uh, uh, about Russia being a threat in 2012 and Barack Obama yes. mocking him for saying, oh, the Cold War yes. was called, the 80s call, they want their foreign policy back. And of course, Romney has been vindicated in my in my view by the events in, in Eastern Europe in recent months. I believe it was a hinge moment. Let me explain why. So popu- populism really explodes on the right, in the as I alluded to earlier, in the final years of George W. Bush's presidency. There is great discontent among the conservative grassroots with George W. Bush's views on immigration, which included an amnesty for illegal immigrants. Uh, there was uh, a, kind of a, Uh, uh, sub-Rosa dissent building about the conduct of the Iraq War uh, that you could see manifest in the liberty movement of Ron Paul. Um, There was this idea that Bush hadn't, it wasn't an idea, it was a fact, spending had exploded under Bush and he he was not a small government guy, right? Um, And then with Obama coming along in the aftermath of the financial crisis and the bailouts this populism just explodes, and it becomes the Tea Party. And the Tea Party is a f- fascinating phenomenon. And it, it, it's um, it's a populist movement. It comes from the below. And yet it's looking at the Constitution and the founding, right? And it's also directed not just against Democrats. It's directed against the Republican establishment. And so you see the Tea Party election of 2010. Republicans win the House of Representatives, they start reading the Constitution on opening day. And there's a big sense of momentum, I think, going into the 2012 election that the energies of the Tea Party, the reassertion of the American idea and the American founding would culminate in Republican victory over Obama, who um, in so many ways uh, was uh, a rejection uh, of of everything that conservatives believed about their country and about America's role in the world. But what happens? Romney and Ryan lose. And they lose very quickly. It's clear by the 11 o'clock news that <laughs> night. Uh, I was there that they had lost. I think this was an extremely dispiriting mo- moment. And on top of that, the GOP elite in Washington DC takes all the wrong lessons from the election. They say that Romney and Ryan lost because they were um, not open enough to immigration, and that they uh, were were too socially conservative. Well, from the conservative perspective, that's completely wrong. Why did Romney Ryan lose? They they didn't generate working class votes, especially in Ohio. And so I think the populist right says, okay, the Romney Ryan model doesn't work. We have to go for a disruptor we have to go for someone outside the system maybe that's Ted Cruz maybe that's Herman Cain someone who's really willing to fight liberals and of course that's Donald Trump and um, Trump comes as kind of the antithesis to Romney right Mm -hmm. we tried Romney it didn't work you know we were too nice we played fair we played by the Queensberry rules well not anymore and and so we have Trump, and Trump, um, unexpectedly, uh, for much of Washington,
0: uh, for half of America, wins. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I want to also think here, uh, in terms of the future of conservatism, there's uh, another group uh, out there, the new right. Uh, some of this group calls themselves post-liberal. Others, I think, think of themselves in pragmatic terms, um, uh, and I think of Orrin Cass's group, the American Compass, and their solution is uh, heavily economic, and uh, in the sense of uh, willing to employ the federal government to do things in the economy on the behalf of rebuilding a working class, a middle class, even uh, maybe single-income families again. Um, and and then there's also this post-liberal group, which you you, you write about uh, in your book. I don't believe you write that much about uh, the American Compass. Maybe it wasn't launched yet when you're writing the book. But we've got we've got the journal American Affairs. Uh, you say it it could have been a journal theorizing Trumpism. Instead, it became a post-liberal journal. Um, and then uh, and then also thinking about uh, American Compass and its agenda, which seems to be also about. Uh, wage subsidies, labor unions, things like that. Do you see that successfully integrating itself into American conservatism? Uh, It seems to be one answer to that question is, is there a call for it from the conservative electorate?
1: Yes. I mean, I I think when you look at the uh, demands and concerns of the American uh, conservative grassroots, they're not crying out for industrial policy. They're they're not crying out for um, the return of mass membership unions. Um, they tend to be animated by cultural concerns primarily, um, and that might make uh, the room for a, a a policy agenda that goes after big tech. Um, mm-hmm. How I'm not sure, but I, I do think I do think that that would be there rather than say. Um, wage subsidy policy. Um, I, I, uh, there are a lot of new rights. <laughs> my uh, friend was counted them up. I think there are three new rights in my book. There's a new right after the Second World War, there's a new right in the 1970s, and now there's a new right today, as we talk in 2022. Um, this new right is uh, a smorgasbord, as you say. There are nationalists, there's Orrin Cass, who, uh, you know, wants to kind of um, change the economic uh, understanding of, of the conservative movement. Um, there are these post-liberals who uh, kind of reject liberalism in all its forms, um, modern and classical. Uh, where are they going to go? I, they're, they're clearly becoming a faction within conservatism and within the republican party but right now i believe it is a minority faction and though it's very present online it's uh, you you go onto twitter um, and you see these ideas everywhere and that may mean that these ideas are um, really influencing younger people in particular and so 20 years from now when those young people are in power uh this new right this post liberal right could be very influential on the other hand um 20 year olds tend to go with whatever is popular at the moment right um i think about my own experience you know when i was in college we didn't have twitter um i was able to, that allowed me to get a lot of work done when i was in college but um yeah yeah they, uh the thing the hot thing was neoconservatism the hot thing was uh, democracy promotion, the freedom agenda, that was cool. That was, that was, uh, you know, the avant garde the, uh, of the intellectual right. Well, now it's post liberalism. Now it's um, traditionalism, uh, uh, trad-, trad, you know, rad trad, radical traditionalism. Uh, it could be just another intellectual fashion. We don't really, we, we don't know. Um, uh, but I do think that when actual Americans, the people who vote in our elections, look at some of these post-liberal ideas, uh, they're likely to kind of uh, shake their head and go, what are you talking about? And in fact, I would include President Trump in that category. (laughs) I think, I don't think President Trump is going to embrace Catholic integralism anytime soon. I think President Trump has a lot in common attitudinally with the new right. But when you look at the policies he he pursued while in office, they were pretty traditional yeah. Republican conservative policies, right? Uh, tax cuts, cons- originalist judges, um, you know, uh, uh, deregulation, spending more in defense, even the border wall. I, I mean, that's been around as an idea for a long time in conservative circles. There's nothing new there. Yeah. So... I, I, I pay some attention to this group um, uh, in, in the book, The Right, um, and I guess we'll have to wait for the second edition to see how, you know, yeah. uh, do they get more pages in the second edition because of their impact or, or did they just remain <laughs> the same because the intellectual currents just go in another direction?
0: No, I... I... It was interesting. I mean, I, I, you mentioned your college experience. I think you and I, roughly the same age, uh, you know, being conservative in undergraduate institutions and in graduate school, you have a sense that you're different, uh, that that you're a bit set apart from other students uh, and and the professors., uh, it seems to me though, those same students, or you know conservative students now, have a much more alienating sense on campus, particularly more elite liberal arts campuses. And I, I think that also drives this. There's a sense of a call to arms uh, and a dramatic moral courage that I think they read in the post liberal arguments, which helps motivate them. And then, you know, someone, uh, you know, like me, for say, who's defending American constitutionalism, I'm actually defending a damaged brand. Yes, and
1: I think religion plays a big role in it too. I right. think that's right, yeah. Um, I think for uh, American Catholics in particular, young Catholics, um, post-liberal thought um, uh, c- goes hand-in-hand hand with the return to, um, uh, you know, kind of pre-Vatican to traditional Catholicism. And um, that, that, so that's the response to changes in the church and, of course, changes in American society, primarily the collapse of religious attendance in American society over the last 20 years. And so that, I think, is making young people who are uh, deeply religious um, look to alternatives uh, and more radical, not only explanations for this um, process of, of, uh, uh, it's not even secularization so much, uh, but it is just religion's kind of collapse, um, and also more radical solutions.
0: Yeah, and I, I suppose it's a whole other conversation. I'll, I'll bring ours to an end to think about the need for institution building and American conservatism as we, as we look to the future. Uh, Matthew Continetti, thank you for joining us. We've been discussing uh, with the author of the new book, The Right, The Hundred-Year War for American Conservatism. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thank you for listening to the Saturday edition of the Daily Signal podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the Daily Signal Podcast on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. And please leave us a review and a five star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back on Monday.
1: The Daily Signal Podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. The executive producers are Rob Bluey and Kate Trinco. producers are Virginia Allen and Doug Blair. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, please visit dailysignal.com.